CFC. I am, uh, it's always a privilege and a joy when I get to uh, serve this different role in the service and open up God's word together with you all. Um, so if you would please just pray with me one more time as we get into this time of, of hearing from God's word. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us your word that we don't have to guess at who you are or what you're like or the things that you care about because you have told us those in your word, God. We know that all scripture is breathed out by you and is useful uh, for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training up in righteousness. And God, we pray that's what your word would do this morning, God, that it would pierce and divide, that we would walk out of here propelled forward and convicted by your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as uh, many of you already know, I am the the worship leader here normally on a Sunday morning. And uh, I've preached now a couple times here, and I figured it was about time that I preached on a passage that was about worship. I don't know if you can be the worship leader at the church and preach and not eventually get around to preaching about what it is we do here when we gather together on Sunday mornings. And I think uh, this passage, the, uh, the question that this passage is going to help us answer as we're thinking about worship is, does it matter what we do when we gather here on Sunday mornings? Does it, God care what different things we have in our services? Does it matter what songs we pick? Does it matter how long or how short we preach or how many scripture readings we read in the service? Um, this is the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about uh, as I'm preparing for services each week. And I think that this passage uh, will give us some insight into what whether it matters and how much it matters. And uh, this is not just a question for me as I'm preparing actually to, to lead the worship here, but also a question for every Christian. As you go to churches, you're visiting a new church or you've been here for, for 20 years, um, we should all be concerned with what are we doing when we gather together to worship and is it what we're supposed to be doing and does it matter? Um, people definitely do this already, whether they do it consciously or not. You visit a new church and you hear one song and you're like, yeah, yeah, I don't think I can go to this church. I don't really like, you know, that style of music, whatever. Or I don't, I don't know if I like how that, that pastor preaches. So we do do this, and I want to, I think hopefully, again, this passage today is going to help us. What does the Bible tell us about what we should care about when we worship together? <clears throat> so if you, have your, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 15. Uh, you're going to find that after... Samuel and Kings, if you've hit the Psalms, you've gone too far. And uh, <clears throat> I'm really excited to get into this passage this morning. First of all, First Chronicles 15 is just one of my personal favorites. Um, but also the book of First Chronicles, right? We hardly ever are, are just sitting down for our quiet times and opening to First Chronicles. It's a book that a lot of Christians, we just don't know what to do with this thing. And it's understandable, right? Maybe you've had this experience before. You go to do your uh, Bible in a year plan. It's January. You're like, all right, I'm going to do it this time. Cover to cover, I'm going to read the Bible straight through. You've got the plan. And this time you make it through Leviticus. You make it through the, the first five books. You're getting there, and you get to the history books. You get to Joshua, Judges. You're learning about the history of the people of Israel. And you get to the kings, David and Saul and all these things. And it's fun, all these fun stories. And then you turn the page after Second Kings. You, you find yourself at First Chronicles. And you run smack dab into nine chapters of genealogies. Just names for nine chapters. And you're like, what is going on here? And then you keep going. And once you get past the names, maybe you're skimming through them. And you get to chapter 10 and you realize that, wait a minute, I think we've already read this before. The book of First Chronicles, 
retells the history of Israel from David all the way to the exile. It tells it again. And so many of us, we get to 1 Chronicles and we're like, what is this doing in here? Why We just read the history of Israel. Why are there two histories of Israel in the Old Testament in our Bible? And I think that's actually the exact right question to be asking. Uh, we kind of stumble upon it on our own as we read through, but that's the question. Why would the Bible include two histories of the people of Israel? The biggest thing to understand about the book of Chronicles is that it was written much later on than Kings and Samuel. And it used Kings and Samuel as its source material. You'll find literally verbatim the same passages at some points in Chronicles as you do in Kings and Samuel. It was written after the exile. The people of Israel had been taken captive off into Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And all of God's people are now in captivity. Then eventually Cyrus, the king of Persia, releases them. He says, hey, you guys can go back to the promised land. So the people of Israel are now back in the promised land. And they're trying to rebuild. You read about it like in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the, the walls of Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. And that is the period in which the chronicler is writing. He's writing to a people who have been not a people. A people who have been uh, torn apart and their, their sacred place of the temple destroyed. And now they're coming back and they're trying to build it back up again. They're trying to figure out how can we get back to uh, what we used to be. How can we, are we still even the same people that we were before? And so when we ask ourselves, why is this book of Chronicles even in the Bible? It's there because the chronicler is trying to encourage these exiles. He's trying to remind them of their history, remind them that, hey, you are a part of this history. You are the people of Israel. This story is your story. All of these promises made to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament, they're promises to you as well. One commentator put it like the, uh, the chronicler is preaching the history of Israel back to its people. And you see him, what he'll do is he'll have these big passages that weren't originally in Samuel and Kings. He'll be going, you're like, I recognize this. What is this? This is new. This wasn't in Samuel and Kings. And those are the ones that you need to clue in on as you're reading. Why would the chronicler emphasize that thing over another thing? Why would the chronicler take that passage out of Samuel? Why, why, why didn't he record this story or that story? And so once you start to see that as you're reading through the book of Chronicles, you can kind of key in on what is this chronicler trying to communicate to the exiles? In fact, this chapter 15 is one of those things that's only found in Chronicles. It's not found in Samuel and Kings. And so we're going to get to think about that uh, right now as we get into it. But before we start reading right at chapter 15, We're going to back up one page, look back to chapter 13, and we're going to start, we need to know where we're at when we arrive in chapter 15. We're we're dropping into the middle of a story here in 15. What is happening in Israel? In chapter 13, this, this story begins of David trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. At this point, David has been crowned king of Israel, all Israel, He goes and he takes Jerusalem as his capital city. And now he's trying to unite the whole kingdom. And he says, wait a minute, where's the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant represents this presence of God among his people. The Ark goes in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. It's the representation of God being there with his people, his presence. And David's like, if we're going to have a united kingdom of Israel with Jerusalem as his capital where people come to worship here, we need to have the Ark. We can't do it without having God's presence with us in the city. So that's where we find ourselves in, verse, in chapter 13. 
And I'm just going to point out a few key verses before we end up in 15. First, verse 3, 13.3. This is David talking to Israel, and he says, Let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So while Saul was the king of Israel, the ark was just sitting randomly in this other city. There's a whole history of how the ark ended up there, which I was going to get into, but this passage is already long, so we don't need to, to add any more in here. But you should do that sometime and just trace. Where is the ark going throughout Israel's history? But at this point, it's just sitting there, and Saul just left it. He didn't, he didn't want to go get it. And so David says, we need to go get it. And so what they do is, verse 7, they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzziah, Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. So they get two oxen, and they get a brand new cart. They're like, all right, here we go. We're going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. They put the ark on this cart. They've got the two guys driving the oxen, and all Israel is going with them. They all have their instruments. They're singing. They're dancing. They're celebrating because... God's presence is going to come into Jerusalem. But then, in verse 9, when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. So all of a sudden, this joyous occasion turns to mourning. As you can imagine it, they're going along, they're all dancing and worshiping, and the, the oxen like trips, hits a pothole, twists his ankle, and the cart's like wobbling, and you can see the ark tipping over. And so the driver reaches back to grab it so it doesn't fall out and instantly dies. God strikes him down. And so David is, is angry. David is confused. He's like, God, how could you do this? I thought, I thought this was a good thing we were doing, bringing the ark into the city. This is something we should be doing, seeking you. And so basically they, they abandon ship. All the celebrating stops. They leave the ark at another guy's house, Obed-Edom, and leave it there. And at the end of uh, chapter 13, it tells us it was there for three months. And that's where we pick up in chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles, where we'll be for the rest of our time today. It's these three intervening months, and we're going to see what has David been doing? What has David been doing while the ark is uh, sitting down there at Obed-Edom's house? So I'll go ahead and start reading in uh, verse 1 here. David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. Of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief with 120 of his brothers, of the sons of Merari, Asiah the chief, with 220 of his brothers. Of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, with 130 of his brothers. Of the sons of Elizaphan, Shemaiah the chief, with 200 of his brothers. Of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, with 80 of his brothers. And of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief, with 112 of his brothers. Then David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. 
we'll stop there for now. So we see that in these intervening three months, while the ark's sitting down at Obed-Edom's house, David is trying to figure out what went wrong. He knows that he should be seeking the Lord. He should be seeking the ark to be in the city. And yet the first time was a disaster. So he's trying to figure out what in the world happened. And we re- as we read here, we realize he has, in fact, figured it out. There's a couple key places where you realize that, oh, okay, David got it. And the big verse here is verse, verse 13. He tells the Levites to carry the ark. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. What went wrong the first time is that David did not move the ark according to the rule, according to scripture, according to the word of the Lord, uh, the law of how it was supposed to be moved. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, there's laws about how the ark is supposed to be moved. If you remember our numbers series, that first five chapters of numbers were all about, we got to set up the camp right. And it's because the Holy of Holies is in the middle with the ark. And if anybody just wanders in there, they're going to die. Uh, this is all throughout the, old, the, the Torah, and they either didn't read it, didn't know about it, whatever the case, for some reason they decided to use a cart. But David goes back to Scripture, he reads it, and he realizes, of course, we didn't actually seek God according to his word. So just briefly, here are the two, there's two rules about the Ark of the Covenant they were supposed to follow that David and them did not follow. The first one is found in Exodus 25. You don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it for us. Um, but this is after Moses has come down. He's, he's given the Ten Commandments. And then he is reading the law to the people. It's God talking to the people saying, these are the rules. These are how you're going to live as my people. And in chapter 25, he tells them, make the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, this is the detail in there that we need to pay attention to. This is verse 13 of Exodus 25. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to carry the Ark by them. The pole shall remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. So right away, when God tells them how to make the ark, he says, hey, put poles in the sides. That's how you carry it. Don't ever remove the poles. This is the way it's supposed to be carried. There's no other way. And of course, we know David and them put it on a cart. In theory, the the poles were in the ark, so they picked it up by the poles and then set it down in the cart. Um, So that's the first rule. But the second and maybe even more important rule that David and them Uh, broke when they tried to bring up the ark was that it's only supposed to be the Levites who carry the ark. If you look at verse 2 in 1 Chronicles 15, David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. That is almost a direct quotation of the rule that they didn't follow in Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. So David clearly has gone back. He's combed through scripture, and he said, what did we do wrong? There it is. We need to carry it by the poles. And most importantly, the Levites are the ones who are consecrated to the Lord to carry this ark. And so David prepares. He builds a place for the ark in verse 1 there. And then he does this big list of names of these Levites. And these are basically the six biggest families of the Levites within the tribe of Levi. There's these six families. And he says, all right, you six, come here. You're the chiefs of your, of your tribe, your family. Go and consecrate yourself. Not just you, who's going to carry the ark, but everybody in your whole family. Consecrate all of them. 
so that we make sure we get this right this time. He quotes scripture to them. He says, you do not, because you did not carry it, you are the ones who are supposed to carry it. And in verse 15, we see that that's what they do. They go, they carry the ark on the poles as they were commanded by the word of the Lord. Well, so far in this sermon, you might be wondering, well, how on earth does this have anything to do with how we worship together here as a church? How any New Testament uh, era church worships? We don't have the Ark of the Covenant sitting up here. We're not going to touch it and die. Uh, we don't even like go to Jerusalem and, and worship at the temple anymore. Um, so what does this have to do with what we're doing here in our church today? I think that the, uh, the returned exiles who the chronicler is talking to would have had the same question because they didn't have the Ark either. When, when Jerusalem was taken out by the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed, the Ark's gone. Uh, these returned exiles, they don't have the Ark. And yet here the chronicler spends so much extra time about how you're supposed to carry the Ark. They're like, what are you talking about, man? We don't, we don't even have that. What does this have anything to do with us? In fact, in, in 2 Samuel, this passage gets four verses, just four verses about the Ark entering the city. In, second, or in 1 Chronicles here, it's two whole chapters, 15 and 16, that talk about the Ark entering the city. So he is really, the chronicler is highlighting this, and he's saying, this is important for you, returned exiles, who don't have the ark. And I think the application is the same for us as it was for them. We should seek God in worship according to his word. David sets an example for us here where he says, I need to make sure I am following God's word carefully, so carefully that he gets together all the Levites and individually make sure that they are all consecrating themselves The example for us is when we gather to worship God, we need to be careful that we are seeking him, worshiping him according to his word. Sometimes we think uh, that our our worship in the the church now is a lot more uh, free and loose. So, okay, we kind of do whatever we want. It's not like the Old Testament where we'll accidentally die, you know, if we touch something or we're fine here, you know, we got, we can, we can do, we can do pretty much whatever we want. But the reality is that there are commands in the New Testament for what we're supposed to do when we gather here and worship together. And we need to understand what we're commanded to do if we're going to seek God according to those rules. So I'm just going to briefly run through it. Um, We're not going to spend a lot of time in each of these or turn to them. I'm just going to give you scripture references for each one if you want to write them down and look them up. Um, But there's a couple main things that we are commanded to do when we come and worship together. The first is that we're commanded to read scripture. Um, we do that every Sunday here, obviously in the sermon, but we started this morning with a scripture reading. Sometimes we have even more sprinkled throughout the service. That's uh, 1 Timothy 4.13. Uh, we're commanded to read scripture when we gather together. We're also commanded to preach God's word. Obviously, we're doing that right now. We do that every Sunday. That's 2 Timothy 4. Um, we are commanded to spend time preaching on God's word. We're also commanded to sing. That's Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. And not just sing to God, but sing to one another. In our, in our singing, when we gather together, we're encouraging one another um, and admonishing one another. And finally, another thing that we are commanded to do when we gather and worship is pray. Um, and obviously we do that at several points throughout our service. We start that way and end that way as well. And then there are also the two sacraments, communion and baptism, that are also commanded for the New Testament church. We had communion this morning. We had a baptism just back on Easter. So all of these things are the things that are required of us. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, or when I'm planning the service throughout the week, I'm thinking we need to make sure all of these things are in there. We need to make sure we're following God according to his rule. And for you uh, who are not planning worship services, 
when you go to a church, when you come here, you need to make sure, are we actually doing what we're supposed to be doing? We're commanded to pray. Did we pray today in our service? We're commanded to, to hear God's word read out loud. Did we do that today? And I would love it for you guys to, if, if you ever have a question about something that we're doing, hey, what was that? Where is that in scripture? Uh, did we do this today? Are we supposed to do that? Um, every Christian needs to be careful to guard and think, are we following and worshiping God according to his word? And again, lest we think this is not serious in the New Testament, you know, we're not going to die, right? Uh, I don't, you know, it's not as bad as the Old Testament, whatever. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, which, which uh, Aaron read for us this morning for uh, communion, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about uh, taking communion. He's talking a lot throughout the book about their worship services. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, 11, he says this, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So there were literally people in the church in Corinth who were incorrectly taking communion and dying because of it. Now we don't have to, we shouldn't come to church and worry, oh, I'm going to come in to see if I might die today. That's not, that's not what's going to happen. Um, because unlike in the Old Testament, we have, they, were, they had to consecrate themselves, right, to approach the, the, uh, the ark. For us, we are consecrated by the blood of Jesus. If we are in Christ, uh, we have been made clean. And in fact, we've been given the Holy Spirit. His presence dwells with us. We don't have to go to his presence. We already have his presence indwelling us. So it's not the same worry of approaching God like that. We've been made clean by the blood of Christ. But it is a serious warning to take seriously the commands given to us in Scripture about worship. We're going to keep reading here, uh, starting in verse 16, picking up where we left off. And it seems like David might be done. He's really prepared a lot. He made me read all those names of the Levites, you know, and he's, he's got everything ready to go. But then before they bring the ark in, he continues to prepare. He continues to get a few more things ready. This is verse 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed He-Man, the son of Joel, and his brothers Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brothers Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them their brothers of the second order, Zechariah, Jaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Benaiah, Maaseiah, Mattitiah, Eliphelehu, and Mikniah, and the gatekeepers, Obed-Edom, and Jael. The singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were to sound bronze cymbals. Zechariah, Aziel, Shemiramoth, uh, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Maaseiah, and Benaiah were to play harps according to Alamoth. But Mattitiah, Eliphelehu, Mikniah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah were to lead with lyres, according to the Sheminith. Chenaniah, the leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. Berechiah and Elkanah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Joshaphat, Nethanel, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar, the priests, should blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. I kind of wish David had stopped... Uh, preparing uh, after those first, those first few verses. Um, this section, this is part of the reason why I love this passage so much, because I just, as a musician, I'm so interested in how they, how they did music in the temple in the Old Testament. We're not going to dig too deep into that today as far as what the, the whole setup is going on here. But I think the application for us following that first section is pretty clear. David did everything he was supposed to according to the word of the Lord. He checked through Scripture 
He figured it out. He got everybody together. He's like, all right, we're following God's word. Now, on top of that, we're going to do this. All of these instruments right here, they're not listed in the law. It's not like David went to Deuteronomy and it said, all right, play harps according to Alamoth and play lyres according to Shiganith, which are two um, musical terms. We don't know what they mean. But it's not like they're in there like we're supposed to do this. Make sure you play three people with a cymbal and have them do that. Make sure you have one guy lead it all because he understands it. None of that's in the law. So David here, is, what he's done is he's prepared according to Scripture. And then for everything else that's going on around, they're going to sing, they're going to praise, they're going to they're have instruments. For all of that, he says, wait a minute, if we're going to be this careful about following God's word here, we need to be this careful with everything we do surrounding worship right here. We need to organize and get together everything that's happening here. And so he goes and he lists off all those names. They get it together. They organize it. I also, uh, verse 22 is a fun one because that's another point. Uh, In the New Testament, there's nowhere that says, you should have a worship leader. Uh, But uh, here we see that you just have the guy who knows how to do it, do it. Um, So I'm thankful for that verse, for having a a job. (laughs) Um, But really, the application for us from this thing, again, same as for the exiles who are, or the returned exiles who are listening to the Chronicler. Be careful with what you do when you worship. First, follow God's word. And then in everything else that you're doing in the temple surrounding worship, make sure there's order. Make sure it's done seriously. Make sure it's, you take time beforehand to plan out and know what's going to happen. I think, I think this part really is the most the most obvious application to us. We, uh, if you go to another church down the street, uh, they're going to sing different songs than us. You go to a church, maybe they have an organ that's, that's playing the music. Maybe they are still using the hymnals. Go to another church, there might be an electric guitar solo in the middle of worship, right? Um, we have freedom to do, to worship how we want to as long as we're following those commanded things in Scripture. So if we're preaching the Word, we're reading the Word, we're praying, we're singing in our service, Uh, The New Testament doesn't tell us, use this instrument or that instrument. It doesn't tell us, make sure you sing these particular songs or those particular songs. Make sure you preach on this passage or that passage. Um, It's left up to us how we actually implement those commands that we're given. But the guiding principle is, how do we decide what songs we pick? How do we decide how many songs or what instruments we're going to use? Some churches don't use instruments because it doesn't say what instruments to use. Um, All of that, what we need to do to figure that out is to say, we need to Whatever we do, take it seriously and do it in an orderly way. Uh, Sit down, think about it, and make sure that what we're about to do in this service is going to be honoring to God and following those commands. This is something we also see in the New Testament. Also in 1 Corinthians, these guys were having a lot of problems with their worship services when they were gathering together. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives them this whole chapter about speaking in tongues and prophesying, which we're not really going to get into that. But the point being, uh, he was telling them rules for how to do it. Only have three people do it. Make sure you only do it if there's an interpreter. All of these rules, why was he putting all these rules uh, in place for how they actually did the tongues in the service? Verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 14, all things should be done decently and in order. So whatever we decide to do, whatever, whatever instruments we decide to have, or how many scripture readings we do, Uh, everything we do needs to be done with order and with the proper seriousness and reverence for what we're doing here, which is worshiping a holy God. We follow his word, and then to implement those commands, 
we do it in a way uh, that is orderful. We've now reached this point. Verse 25, we're almost all the way through the passage. Just one last paragraph. We're going to see what is the result of all of this planning that David has done. He's gone through and he's organized the Levites. He's gone through, he's organized the musicians. He followed God's word. He went above and beyond God's word to make sure that everything was going to be in order there. And then we come to verse 25 and we see what happens. What is the result of the planning here? So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. Well, what was the result of all of David's meticulous planning? They did it. The Ark comes into the city. God's presence is now in the middle of his people in their capital city of this united nation of Israel. And so the people rejoice. And what I think is really interesting is that sometimes we kind of chafe against this idea of order and, oh, well, if we have, if we have to sit down in the service and stand up here and if we only have this many songs and if we have all these rules in place, how are we going to be free and just, and just worship the Lord and shout and dance and, and be joyful? And what we see with the Israelites here is uh, all of that order that David implemented was so that they would be joyful as they brought the ark in. If you look back in verse 16, uh, the reason why David commanded the chiefs of the Levites to do all this stuff was to raise sounds of joy. And so that's exactly what they do. They're rejoicing, they're shouting, they're dancing. And in fact, all of this order that David has implemented has not stifled their joy. They're not less joyful than the first time they came up with less order. They are even more joyful. This order has uh, facilitated a place to be joyful. That's what we try to do when we come to worship. That's the reason why we have all this order and we take time to make sure we're doing it right is so that we can rejoice. It's so that we can rejoice even more greatly and have have a place for that when we gather together. They're not just rejoicing, however, because the the Ark of the Covenant has made it into the city. Of course, that is, they didn't do it the first time, so they are rejoicing because of that. But even more than that, they're rejoicing because God helped them bring the Ark into the city. If you look at verse 26, Because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. What the Israelites have have realized here, what the priests have realized as they carry the Ark into the city is that they never could have done it if God had not helped them bring that Ark into the city. Uh, they, they They went so hard to try and follow the word right, but can you imagine how terrifying it would have been to pick up that Ark again after somebody had just died touching it? And so they pick up the ark, and 2 Samuel tells us they walk six steps. As soon as they make it that far, David immediately starts sacrificing animals. They immediately start rejoicing because they realize God has helped us do this. God has helped us follow his word correctly, follow his word well, and now he is faithful to help us bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem. You'll also notice here a really, maybe you noticed it when I was reading it, 
Starting in verse 25, so far in this passage, the chronicler has been just calling it the ark, the ark of God, the ark of the Lord. Starting in verse 25, all of a sudden there's, there's this emphasis on the covenant. All of a sudden, verse 25, it's the ark of the covenant of the Lord. 26, it's the ark of the covenant of the Lord. 28, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And 29, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. As the chronicler is speaking to these, these returned exiles who are discouraged and who are feeling without hope because they don't see what God is doing. They don't know what's going on. He gives them this story of David and the Israelites bringing the ark in. And he says, see how they rejoiced because God was faithful to them. God helped them bring the ark in. Uh, He is the God of the covenant. That covenant that he made with them still applies to you. You are still members of that covenant. And he just hammers it home as he ends this passage. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Uh, You, people in exile, are the people of the covenant. And God is faithful to help you live out his word. God is faithful to help you as we strive to worship him, as we strive to do it according to his word, to do it in a correct way. He's faithful to help you do that still today. And so again, I think the the application, very much the same for us. We can't truly, fully follow God's word without his help. And praise be to God that he did send us that help. He sent his son to live and follow God's word perfectly like we couldn't. Uh, He died and took the death that we deserved for not following God's word perfectly. He rose again to life and he sent us his Holy Spirit, his presence to indwell each and every one of us so that we have the power to follow his word. We have the power to follow his word and worship him well. God is faithful and he desires to be with his people so he made a way to be with us and to help us be faithful to him. Finally, just just one last verse here. Uh, Verse 29 just stuck in there. Um, if you read Second Samuel, there's a much longer account about Michal, Saul's daughter. Here, just one verse. And in fact, the verse kind of breaks up the flow of the whole thing. If, if that verse wasn't there, it'd read really nicely into 16. It's just this little side note about uh, Michal. And this is the only place that she's, she's in Chronicles. Like, we don't know. It doesn't talk about her being David's wife. It doesn't talk about any of that. All it says is that Michal is the daughter of Saul and that she despised David. And right as he's about to continue on talking about the celebration that's before the ark on, in chapter 16, there's this big psalm that's, that's in there about the people praising before the ark. Right before he does that, the chronicler reminds us and the people in exile that David is the true king. David is the uh, example of what the king should be. Do you remember when we read in chapter 13, right at the beginning of this sermon, that in the days of Saul, they didn't seek the ark? Well, right here again, the chronicler gets in another shot at Saul, and he says, even Saul's daughter despises David. Saul didn't seek God, didn't seek the ark. David did seek God. Saul didn't follow God's word, God's commands. David messed it up at first, but then fixed it and did follow God's commands. And so all throughout the book of Chronicles, and right here in this verse, the chronicler is reminding the people in exile, or in return from exile, uh, there is this, David is the picture of the good king, the Davidic king, the true king, and he's still coming back. There is still going to be a, a Davidic king on the throne. For these people in this second temple period, there wasn't, they didn't have a, a, a king. They didn't know, you know where the line of David went. They didn't know who was going to be on the throne. And they, again, were wondering, God, what happened to that promise you made to David? I thought he was going to reign on the throne. His descendant was going to reign on the throne forever. And the Chronicles says, yes, he is. He's going to look like this. He's going to be like David. He's going to follow God's word even unto death. He's going to seek after God and worship, and he is going to come. He's encouraging these 
these Israelites in this time that God is faithful, this king from David is still going to come. And the really cool note in this passage, in verse 27, David is wearing the same outfit as the priests. Normally, uh, nobody would be wearing all of those priestly garments except the priests themselves. Uh, certainly the kings, not from the line of Levi, would not be wearing priestly garments and doing priestly things. But we get a glimpse here in David of our king who did come in Jesus Christ and who not only is our king, but is our high priest uh, who is tempted in every way as we are, but yet without sin. And he is now before the Father interceding on our behalf and we are able to come before him, come to the throne because we have this high priest who has come. So as we go out of here today, I hope that maybe you'll read a little bit of First Chronicles this week, get into it. It is an um, amazing book that has so much profit for us. We know that, of course, from Second Timothy, but you can read through and see how it, uh, it's an underappreciated book, I think. But also as we head out of here today, I hope that we remember that as we, in any situation where we're worshiping together, we're thinking, are we doing this according to the word of the Lord? Are we doing this in a way that is serious and uh, has order to it? Um, so that we can honor our God. And we know that we have this encouragement that God will be faithful to us. Uh, He already has been faithful to us in Christ. He's given us his spirit, so we know that he is faithful to help us as we try to worship him, help us as we try to follow his word. And we, like the exiles here, are awaiting the return of our perfect Davidic king, our high priest, uh, to come again someday soon. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, even for the books in it that we don't always know what to do with, the passages that we don't always know how to interpret, God, and we know that your spirit is with us, helping us to interpret that word, helping us to apply it to our lives. And God, we thank you for this passage in Chronicles and pray that as we go out of here, we would take worship seriously, that we would be scouring through your word, reading it, trying to figure out what you have to say about how we worship you. And God, I pray also that we would be encouraged knowing that your spirit is with us, that we have the power to follow your word, that we are able to truly worship you for everything that you have done for us, God. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.